Hey, welcome back to the Product Experience, the podcast for product people. Hey, Lily, what do a hedge fund manager and a product manager have in common? Oh, I don't know, Randy. What does a hedge fund manager and a product manager have in common? I don't know either, but Lucy McLean does. Oh, I thought you were going to make us both really rich. <laughs> oh, not quite yet. Uh, but we did have a great chat with Lucy. She just left her job as head of product for Children's Digital at the BBC. And she talked in Manchester early this year about how product managers have to manage risk investment and have a diverse portfolio. It's a great compliment to Ken Norton's 10X talk. So without further ado, let's chat to Lucy. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're really excited to talk with you. Um, before we get into the topic of the day, um, one of the things you talked about on stage in Manchester was uh, how you got into product. And it's a fantastic and fascinating story. Do, do you have the most famous hands on the internet? I very much doubt it. Um, they have appeared extensively on the BBC News website, though. So that's that's been quite interesting. I didn't, actually, I didn't think my career in product management would involve me also becoming a hand model, but but there you go. Yeah, but just to explain a little bit you know, about how I got into product management, like all product managers, I was something else beforehand, and I was a journalist. I trained as a print journalist and joined the BBC as the researcher in its World Affairs Unit. So I worked with the most senior foreign journalists, worked on BBC World TV, worked on BBC News 24, and then joined the website as a journalist. And through that, got to know the team who actually built the website, the engineers, the designers, and became more and more interested in their work. And then a job came up in 2006, I think it was, to be the product manager for our mobile news website, which I think at that point had just moved from WAP to HTML. I think we might have had color by that point and a Java app. It was all very new and very exciting and worked very well on your shiny Nokia phones. And, you know, 13 years later, here I am still in product. So it was the right move. And yeah, as a result of that, many pictures of my hands were taken, <laughs> holding devices and have ended up in all kinds of places. And do you think there's a bit of an alignment actually between journalism and product management? Because there must be that kind of need to be curious and, you know, want to tell stories. And there's lots of kind of things that align with journalism and product management. Absolutely. I think you, you chose the right word there, curiosity. It's very much part of being a journalist, wanting to be there, wanting to be find out what's going on, wanting to get into the middle of things. And I think as a product manager, to do your job well, you need that curiosity, that hunger to know, and to be the first to find out as well. So yeah, lots of parallels. I think the communication skills come in really handy as well. Um, at the BBC, there are quite a lot of product managers who come from an editorial and journalism background and given you know a lot of our stakeholders come from that background too it really helps build relationships because you can understand the needs of your stakeholders and your users really well so yeah it's definitely good grounding I think. And you spent the last few years as the head of children's digital at the BBC can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah that's right so I've been the head of the product team building the BBC's products for children really interesting area to be in you know children are strategically Really important for BBC. We provide a you know a really valuable service to children and parents, and I think it's been really interesting for me in making me really think about my users and what they need, and not from the point of view of assuming that I know best as the user. I'm not four. I don't know what a four year old <laughs> needs, and um, so I really have to spend time getting to know our audience and their needs, and just the incredible rate at which they pick up technology. I mean, that was mm. the most 
heartbroping piece for for me to see was to see really old young children using tablets and devices. And you know, we've got a real responsibility to make experiences which are valuable and, and useful, so that the time that we do have on these devices is really well spent. Um, but the creativity you get to to play with in these things, you know, everything's bright and colourful and fun and noisy. And just, you know, seeing our team sit and playing games as part of their work is pretty cool. Um, we start talking about Christmas in about February. So <laughs> quite different from the time I spent working in news and sport. But it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I can definitely um, sympathise with understanding children and their, their understanding of technology. I've got a few kids of my own and there's definitely been a few times where I've kind of given them a tablet thinking, oh, yeah, they'll just watch this thing that I put on YouTube or whatever. And then you turn around 10 minutes later and they're, I don't know, they've inverted the color of the screen. That was like one thing that they kept doing. And I was like, how are you doing this? And every time I'd have to Google like how to change it back again. Yeah, quite often the things we built children use in completely different ways than you imagine. But that's fine. That That's, you know, what we try and do is create things that give them chances to play openly. You know, don't put any rules in it. Give them things that you can use to kind of fire their imagination and tell stories and have fun with. And that's been some very successful products um, have, have been in creating experiences for children just to play and use their yeah. imagination. And the standard of product management at the BBC is very high, isn't it? I mean, I know a few product managers who have come out of the BBC and they always seem to know the role very well and to be able to kind of to do the job very well. Why do you think that is? What is it about the BBC that's cultivated this incredibly high standard of product management? I think partly it comes from the role that our products play in the UK. You know, we make products that people use every day. I guess I mentioned earlier, we've got a big responsibility to make mm. it work. You know, when I worked on the Olympics and the people just had to be able to watch the Olympics. We worked really hard to make things that were going to work because you knew the scale of the audiences that were going to use these products. So we hire people who we think are committed to doing that. And just by virtue of working on these kind of products, you develop an incredible passion for them that makes you want to do your best work. And that is partly about being a great product manager, you know, with the best kind of skills to do that work um, to do the best for your audience is, as well. Yeah, I think it's very much about what we do really drives people to want to do it really well. Okay, changing this subject entirely, I'm going to ask a question I never thought I would ever ask anyone. Why are product managers like hedge fund managers? Well, I think they're like hedge fund managers because I think we do the same thing. I think product managers and hedge fund managers both make investment strategies. That's what we do every day. We are thinking about the bets we're going to place. A hedge fund manager is thinking very much about money. You know, where can I place my bets to kind of generate real income and real kind of return investment? And as product managers, we are thinking about where we're going to invest our own time and effort, the time and effort of our teams, of our designers, of our engineers, of our design researchers. And that's also money as well, really, isn't it? And it's somebody else's money. So I, I think there's a lot of parallels between what a product manager and investment, uh, someone involved in investments does. Um, it's really all about kind of creating strategies to win. And I think there are some concepts that I see in financial investment work, like risk. I think, you know, risk is a really interesting thing and a, and a concept that I'm trying to bring to my product management how did you come to this realization? Where did the symmetry between product and investment come to mind for you? It's something that's kind of emerged in my thinking over the last couple of years. The BBC has made significant extra investment into children's digital products and content. 
So the range of products that I look after in my portfolio has really grown and changed over the last couple of years. And I find myself in meetings with stakeholders and a team talking about having a balanced portfolio and kind of having conversations about balanced portfolio risk and changing the profile of the portfolio. And these concepts, again, I'd heard them mentioned before and people talking about investment strategies like, you know, like hedge fund managers and things. So I started doing a little bit of work to investigate what a hedge fund manager actually did. And a lot of the skills there are the same as product management. It's about great domain knowledge, understanding the market, thinking about what's going to change and then placing bets that are going to help you win. So, yeah, so I think that was it was that, that initial thinking about a balanced portfolio, which is what you do in investment planning, but also think what we do as product managers. And especially when you're a product manager or a head of product, who's managing a range of products and you're thinking about what you're going to grow, what you're going to start, what you're going to turn off, what you might downsize. I think there's some really useful concepts that work well from the investment world for product managers. And when you talk about risk, what are you talking about in this sort of context? Like what defines sort of high risk and low risk? I think the idea of high, medium and low risk work maps quite well to traditional innovation models. So you have incremental, sustaining and disruptive innovation and if we talk through the three you know in, in turn if we start with low risk work that's it's the work that we know best it's the kind of the incremental work where we're looking at the signals in our products about improvements we can make that will make life better for our users that will increase conversion that kind of thing you know you're spending time and money you're spending effort so it has got a cost and generally you know the, the returns will, will be reasonable your low-hanging fruit will be high value. If you're doing this at scale, um, it can be really high value. But generally, the returns on this work are, you know, they're, they're known. You might make nothing out of it. You might make a bit out of it, but you're not going to change the world with these, these pieces of work. So they're quite low risk in that, you know, generally small investment, reasonable returns. When you get to medium and higher risk, you're looking at bigger pieces of work, which are generally more risky they're more risky because they're going to cost you more. And you just you, you don't know as much about whether they're going to be successful. Um, when you get to your real kind of high risk work, you're really looking to the future. What's going to happen in the world a few years down the line? And where might our business go? How do we kind of sustain and grow ourselves? And you're really in quite high risk territory there. You can spend a ton of money and come out with nothing. Or you could spend you know a ton of money and come up with something that's really going to change the world could change your business. These are kind of the, the 10 times ideas that Ken Norton talks about. Um, and I think what I'm concerned about is the extent to which we expect high risk products to work. It's the risk factor that's really important. You know, it's important to have these as part of your portfolio, but the expectation they're going to win is the piece that I think we're going to talk about. They are risky things, you know, and, 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 in the kind of financial world, you have a sort of concept of volatility. You just don't really know. And I think as product managers, you know, we, we have a range of tools and techniques to help us break down ideas, you know, your, your kind of product market fit work to try and get a, a better sense of the chances of something winning, but you just never know. So I think if you're going to invest in high risk work, you have to be prepared to lose it all. And I think it's important to have a conversation with your company about whether it's willing to do that. How much is it willing to lose? Because if you're going to bet big, you have to be willing to lose it all as well. So with high-risk products, what's the best way to kind of manage the expectations within the organisation over how much they're investing and what return they might get out of that? I think there's a few things you can do. I think and a really easy one is to talk about these areas of exploration as experiments. 
because um, that's what they are. You don't know if they're going to win or not. And the more we talk about experiments, the easier it is to talk about them as, as failing or not succeeding rather than things that have to work because this is our next new thing and it must succeed. Because we just know that isn't necessarily going to happen. And I think, you know, a good product manager has a range of tools and techniques they can use to explore the market, to explore the appetite for their, their products as well. For me, the important thing to bear in mind is that we can often kind of fall in love with our own ideas. And that's where it gets really, really, really risky. We can get really excited about the, the high risk thing. Even if we talk about them as being experiments, we can still, you know, kind of, we, we know it's going to be successful. You can really think you're onto something here. I read a really great piece that really puts this into perspective. Um, John T. Gurville wrote a piece in the Harvard Business Review, I mean, I think it's 13 years ago now, about understanding your, your users and what gets in the way of them adopting new things. So regardless of how amazing your new ideas and your big high-risk products are, there's still this barrier to people adopting them. And I think it's really important to remind you know people in the business and your stakeholders and your teams that no matter how great their product is, you've still got these barriers in your users' minds, which might get in the way of them adopting it as well. So you have to work extra hard to sort of overcome those. Do you find that the change of language that you use changes the way you interact with stakeholders or with the, the other product managers in the organization? I think it does. I think, I think it kind of creates a sense of excitement. You're in this together. It changes it from being a, a solution delivery function to a team working together to explore and experiment you know you're in this together you don't know but you're going to go on this journey together and together you'll find out what happens and that kind of you know it, you feel like you're on on in the same carriage at the same train at the same time which is you know that's a, it's a nice way to work much um, it's a much nicer way to work and with this idea of a balanced portfolio which i really like how do you do, does that then define what projects or what things you go after if that makes sense so you you know like you say you've kind of got your low-hanging fruit and then you've got your sort of medium amount of investment and level of unpredictability and then your high investment and I guess high amount of unpredictability as well is that how you sort of look at your program of work these days it is I found it really helpful over the last couple of years just to kind of align expectations about how much work we can do and what we're going to deliver in terms of impact. So it's definitely not about, you know, a proper traditional roadmap of writing down the things we're going to do and then delivering them. It takes you away from that and it starts thinking about what the impact of what you're going to do. Um, depending on what your company needs you to achieve, that will dictate what your portfolio looks like. I've used it to talk to stakeholders about, you know, we might need to do quite a lot of work. Um, of have sort of, low risk work to get our products into a state where they're as good as competitors. Kind of go, going back to how you'd have a conversation about financial risk, you'd think about how much have you got to spend? How long does, you know, when do you expect to get the return and how willing are you to lose it? And I think there's the same kind of conversations you can have with stakeholders. You know, how much have we got to spend? How much are we willing to put into the portfolio or different bits of it? When does the return need to happen? Have we got three years? To have an outcome we're looking for something really sharp and spiky in the next year um and then how risky we're going to be and that will kind of dictate what shape your portfolio is if the appetite for risk is quite low you're not going to have a lot of things in your high risk bucket but if your company needs a big return in, in you know in year one you can have it all low risk work as well so it just helps you have an honest conversation about expectations of what you can deliver in terms of impact. 
I think it's also really important that your team know this. If someone is responsible for delivering uh, something that's kind of classed as high risk, they need to know that it's okay if that doesn't work out, that you've got their back, that the business knows this is an experiment and everyone isn't looking at it, assuming it's going to deliver. They need to know that the business is, you know, is aware of the reality of that piece of work succeeding. I also think it's important for teams delivering what, you know, the low risk work to, to know kind of when to stop. And I think the best way to do that is to make them aware of the bigger picture. Where does their work fit into this portfolio? What are the expectations of it? And, you know, I really love when a product manager comes to me and said, I could keep doing this work, but realistically, I can see that our time and effort would be better spent elsewhere because I can see the opportunity there. To me, that's a really good sign that a product manager is looking up and out and thinking about where they fit into the portfolio. So, yeah, that's something that I really like to see. Someone really thinking about the, the whole environment and, you know, trying to work together to, to deliver more together. So does high risk mean that it's potentially going to be expensive? Can it be cheap and high risk? And how do you know when to call it quits on something that's high risk? Really good question. Ideally, you, you would spend as, as little as you could. And I think, you know, we all know the techniques you can do to kind of to, to sort of learn a bit more about market fit. I think you'll also find that things might move down the categories. Something might start as high risk. And then you might know enough to say, actually, no, we're kind of in a medium risk zone with this now, maybe it's for the next phase. It's very easy to keep spending. I totally get that. And something might need to be high fidelity enough that you're spending more than you'd be comfortable with. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. <laughs> That's okay. We like asking the hard questions. Yeah, another way to think about it as well is that you might, you know, an individual experiment might might be high risk, but you probably need to do a few. If you run one experiment a year, you know, how many can you afford to run? Because the more you run, the more chances you've got of finding the one that's going to win. So did you have any um, kind of high risk? I'd like the high risk stuff because that's more, that's just more my, my wheelhouse. I hate the term wheelhouse, but I'm going to say that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have any um, high risk experiments pay like pay off and pay dividends for the business? We've got a couple in train at the moment, and I'm really happy with the way that they're going. Yeah, we're exploring a couple of really interesting spaces that I'm really excited about. And I think high risk experiments can pay off in different ways, right? So, you know, a high risk experiment might give you a hugely successful part that changes your business. It also might have a great impact for you, you know, in a, in a PR term. And I, th- I think the interesting part about being at the BBC is that a lot of our products are judged on, you know, unique browsers and retention and time spent and that kind of thing. But we also look at, you know, the public service value of what we do. So there are different ways that something might be successful. Um, and we've, we've got a couple of examples at the moment of high risk products that may not have a traditional, you know, measurement outcomes. They're more about kind of measuring societal impact. Um, and I'm really excited to see where they go. Can't we talk more about them at the moment? Um, but yes, we've definitely got got a few on our slate. And we've also shut some down. Um, there were some we were looking at doing, I think it was, it was augmented reality we were looking at for young children. And the experiments were great. They were really interesting ideas and the kids loved them. But when I looked at the device portfolio of what that audience had, very few of them had AR kit. You know, a lot of my users are on iPad 2s that are cracked and covered in jam. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it just wasn't the right time for, for that one, for example. But, 
yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy that we've tried some, some, some high risk things. We've learned a lot from the ones that we've done. Um, I think we probably got more medium ones in train. I think I was really excited when we got our extra investment because it really felt like there were some obvious things that we wanted to try that were missing from the portfolio. So when we first got our investment, we ramped up quite significantly on the medium sized pieces of work products that we'd felt that our research and feedback from users told us that they wanted from us. So we spent quite a lot of time and money on those, but always had, you know, a strand of high risk ones just to explore the edges. And yeah, some of them are, are paying off and are coming to market soon. And some of their things that we just looked at and went, you know, the market's not ready for this. The devices aren't there or it's, yeah, it's just too complicated. Okay. One of the things you talked about also is that your customers undervalue you by three times and you overvalue your own product or ideas by three times. So you need to be nine or 10 X better. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. This is the, the John T. Gerville piece I mentioned earlier, but didn't fully explain. I love this concept. I just think it's a really good thing to shout out when someone's getting really excited about an idea. Just shout, is it nine times better though? Um, and I think, you know, Ken Norton's idea of a, a 10x company aligns quite nicely. What the nine times idea does is really try to unpick how to understand if your product genuinely is better. So there's this idea, this kind of idea that people overvalue what they have. So I've got things and I irrationally, slightly overvalue them because I've got them. They are mine. I like them. I've spent money on them. I've spent time learning to use them. If you're a company that's invented something new, you've been thinking about that thing for a long time. You know it inside out. You've spent time and you know, blood, sweat and tears on it. So you massively value that and you overvalue it. And when some, you know the potential customer undervalues something and you overvalue something, you've got this mismatch. So the suggestion is that your product needs to be about nine times better than the thing people already have to have a chance to succeed. So you know, it doesn't have to just be a great product. It's got to be an incredible product. And yeah, and that's really hard. It's really, really hard. You can be a great product, but just not good enough and you won't succeed. And I think that's quite scary. Mm. Trying to unpick, well, why is there a thing better? How, how do we understand if it is nine times better? That's really, really difficult, which takes you back to an experiment. And that's the, you know, the best way to explore and, and be humble about what, what you've done because we can get blinded by what we're doing and get overexcited by it and be so enthused by the shiny, shiny. We're not really thinking about the barriers that users have to overcome to really want our thing, to put down their current products, to pick ours up, to get to grips with it and then stick with it. It's a lot harder than we think it is. And I think we forget that sometimes. How have you convinced someone that something's nine or 10 times better or challenged them and made them realize it's not? I think it's easy to come up with an idea in a bubble. So, you know, you make up with an idea and I've seen this before where someone's had an idea and the idea itself is really good. This is a great product. But you'll say to them, but why are they going to put down X and pick that up? Why is this nine times better than what you've come up with? And that's generally where you, you know, you find out quite quickly if there isn't a really clear reason. Because a lot of the markets we're in now, things already exist. You know, a lot of our worlds, we're improving on things that exist. And if you can't explain really clearly why your thing is nine times better and then have some research and some data to back that up, chances are it's probably not. And I think, you know, getting people out of their bubble where they've got this idea, but they haven't really stress tested it against what's happening in the market and then got some actual user feedback, they're probably wrong. <laughs> yeah, I love the um, 
the analogy of the the hair on fire problem, which I guess it doesn't really relate when it's a a sort of an entertainment product, but that kind of idea of you know if someone's hair isn't on fire and they're not trying to put the fire out with with your product, I'm trying to remember how it's like if you have a brick, um, you might put the fire out with a brick, but if <laughs> I find that analogy uh, obnoxious for those of us with thinning hair. I'm not very good at um I'm not very good at explaining that one. But then there's the other there's the other one as well, which is the vitamin or the pill. So I've used the vitamin or the pill analogy as well before, like, you know, is your product uh just kind of making something a little bit better and then it's like a vitamin, or is it a pill like it's really properly sort of solving a problem for you? Yeah, you really have to go so much further than you think you, you have to. So much further and looking at the market, looking at what everybody else is doing and really being so much better than the best. I mean, mm. that right. It, it's great, and but it's super hard and it's so much harder than people think. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're thinking about this, do you kind of just go by gut feel to begin with and then measure? Or can you think of any ways in which you can measure this? You know, to get to that, when I think about nine times, I'm like, okay, how do I measure that it's like nine times better? Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly inexact science, isn't it? Um, I think the more time you can spend with users and potential customers, the better. Given it's, you know, you're building this stuff for people, you can do very little wrong by spending as much time as possible with your users. Um, at the BBC, we do a huge amount of this. And children are an absolute gift to work with in this area because if it's not very good you will know very quickly <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't have the problem with uh up user interviews where the user tells you what you want to hear they are always telling you what they think straight away oh no and you know it's a really competitive market we're working with huge you know children are spending a lot of time on a small number of huge global brands and then you know huge global experiences so we have to work really hard and be really you know really humble rational about what we're doing to say really you know do children want what we've got um why would they spend time with us why would they put down that thing and do this instead so we have to be very very clear in our understanding of what we're trying to achieve and why they would and and again with children's products you're trying to make it you know things that are really fun that children themselves want to play but also for the youngest children it's parents they're your users as well they're the ones who are deciding how long children get to play with devices which apps they're going to get so trying to find something that appeals to different users um, is, is quite a challenge as well. God, it's like a it's like a B2B problem where you have to design the personas for both the person who uses it and the person who's purchasing it, except in this case it's a kid and a parent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a challenge, but you know, a, a really fun one. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about risk in terms of investment risk. But obviously, if you're working with children, there's that whole other side of risk as well, which is, you know, making sure that you're building a product which doesn't put your your users at any kind of risk. Yes. And um, that that must have been quite a challenge as well. It is. Um, and I think that to me, that's been one of the best things about working at the BBC is is having you know a, a range of experts around us. Obviously, we work closely with the children's TV department who have 50 years of experience of working with children to make content. Um, they have an incredible length of experience around child safeguarding, 
child protection and child age protection, so online and in the real world. So we have some real experts that, who can help us make sure that we're making experiences that, that you know, add to children's lives, that engage them, entertain them, inspire them and keep them safe. Um, we've done a lot of work to develop real kind of best-in-class experiences so that when children are sharing content, publication on our apps or on television, that, you know, we know exactly what's happening to their data their parents know what's happening to their data. You know, it's super safe. Um, and yeah, I'm really proud of the work that we've done in this area. I think it's it's really good work. For anyone who's working on children's products or who who's about to, is there anything that you'd want to impress upon them? Is there something you see as a real problem in the industry that you wish you could fix? I don't know about a problem. I just hope people don't. I, I, my advice would be not to underestimate the work involved in getting this stuff right. You know, the, the, the safety of children and their data is super important and it is really complex and complicated and with changes in the law through GDPR, it's a complex thing to navigate, but take your time and get it right. Um, you know, we have a big responsibility when we are, you know, spending time with children and creating things for them. So spend the time to get it right. Don't shortcut it. And I hear on the grapevine that you're leaving the BBC having spent, was it half your life at the BBC? It's true. Yes. Nearly 23 years since I joined the BBC. I joined joined for three months in August (laughs) 1996 and look what happened. So (laughs) yes, I'm leaving in three weeks time. I'm packing my bags and saying goodbye to BBC and to Manchester and I'm moving to Berlin. Amazing. And well, it sounds like you did like a whole ton of different stuff at the BBC, but what's what's kind of inspired you to move on? What's your next challenge? I mean, I'd be, as you mentioned, I've been really lucky to have you know an amazing career at the BBC as a journalist and a product manager, and I've worked on lots of different products. Um, and I wanted to try something else. An opportunity has come up um, at Omeo, the travel startup in Berlin. And I've always been fascinated by travel. And it's quite fancy to go and have a look and, and, and learn some more about that. And Berlin, <laughs> what a great place. I'm really excited about that too. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to catching up with you and seeing how uh, how you transform things there. Thank you. We'll definitely do that. So you're moving from quite a big corporation that's public funded money um, into a startup. How, how do you feel about that? Is that exciting, daunting, or do you feel like it's just going to be kind of the same anyway, because there's just so much alignment between the two roles? I think there are going to be parallels and massive differences as well. Um, I'm looking forward to be able to to move at great speed again, which is things, you know, something I have done at the BBC before, but I'm really looking forward to seeing just how different it is being part of a startup environment that's growing very quickly. And yeah, and the, and the, the travel side of it, I think I'm really looking forward to to seeing how that actually works because as a, a user of travel services, it's going to be interesting going back into an area where I'm a consumer as well as a product manager. And I hope my experience working with children and my experience BBC will kind of keep me a bit grounded and not assuming that I know best. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, I think as well, obviously I've only worked in product in the UK, both in London and in Manchester. And I'm interested to see what, what, what product culture is like in Berlin and looking forward to getting involved in that too. Yeah. I've heard it's got a really great product scene in Berlin. So I'm sure it'll be great. Should be fun. Cool. And obviously learning some German too. That's first on my list. I have signed up for lessons. So I start the second week I get there. 
Amazing. You need to, the Duolingo app. Have you tried that? I have, yes. Yes. I'm getting yeah. it slowly, but I think once I get there, we'll, we'll get immersed. Brilliant. Well, I wish you lots of luck with um, with the new role. And thank you so much for taking the time out to have a chat with us. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Lucy, that was fantastic. Thank you. Wow, Lucy's had a really interesting career and I bet Omeo are feeling very pleased with that steal. And I'm looking forward to using all her stuff with my clients. So please don't forget to like and subscribe and tell all your friends about our podcast. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at mtppod. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. And here's global product tank manager, Mark Abraham, to tell us more about what product tank is. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time.